This message is from Icon, from Community, Icon Church. Community Church. Icon is a church located in Metro located Atlanta. In Metro Seeks Atlanta. to be defined by grace, 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 grace community, community, and renewal. renewal. Community and renewal. For more information, please visit our website at iconcommunitychurch.org. At iconcommunitychurch.org. Or follow us on Facebook. Instagram. A Twitter. Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Happy Palm Sunday. This is, I gotta say this, this is like, it's, it's such a refreshing thing to not be staring at a camera. Uh, it's, it's been, the last two years now has been a challenge for everybody, for all of us. And so it's so good to just have faces to see, to be able to hug and be around each other and gather the way we're meant to gather. And I'm thankful that we've done our best to try to be wise in the midst of where we are, but we miss each other. And we definitely have needed to be around each other. And, and so here we are, Holy Week. Leading up to Easter, as we walk into uh, the day that we celebrate and remember the resurrection, uh, today is Palm Sunday. This is a day that is often uh, called the triumphal entry. Uh, this is a, a triumphant day. This is something that uh, elicits celebration. It's worthy of a parade. I don't know about you, but me growing up, I always loved parades. Anybody ever went to parades growing up? Love parades. It was uh, super fun. Growing up in Detroit, I would love, uh, we would have the Thanksgiving Day Parade. It'd be downtown. And I, would, I can remember going one year with my, my dad and we all went down. There was a picture of me on my dad's shoulders on the front of the Detroit News. And I remember my, somebody in my family had bought it and it's just me looking like a kid who hadn't had a haircut in three years, sitting on my dad's shoulder. Yeah, they, it was embarrassing. Uh, but, but I remember just being the, all of the celebratory nature. I mean, everyone is excited. We've got the floats coming down. Everybody's looking for Santa Claus to come down. Uh, I can remember when some of the local sports teams won championships and everybody wanted to make their way down. We've seen that here in Atlanta, right? The Braves just won a championship. And even more broadly, UGA wins the college championship and all of the people, they, they, they come and crowd the streets to celebrate together. There's this idea, there's something that we all share together and we, we celebrate, maybe something we were hoping for and it materialized. And so we, we celebrate. Everybody loves a parade. Everybody loves a reason to celebrate. And we've been this way for as long as human history has been recorded. It's not just recent, right? We can go back uh, several, I mean, several decades and look at examples. And back when people would throw parades in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, they would throw parades for even things that are great human achievements. I mean, you go back to uh, 1927, October, Charles Lindbergh. They threw a massive ticker tape parade for the man who became the first person to fly across the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, they, they tell us, historians tell us there was 750,000 pounds of ticker tape all over the ground because of just how much celebration happened during this parade. Fast forward almost 40 years, astronaut John Glenn becomes the first person, first American to orbit the earth, came home to a massive, raucous parade. They tell us there was almost 3,500 tons of paper and confetti and ticker tape just to celebrate because people were that excited uh, to be able to, ha to, to celebrate in something that felt triumphant because there was this idea that because they achieved, we achieved. 
Because they did something great, we get to share in that celebration. So celebration is something that's normal and it's good and we all love it. Everybody loves a parade. Parades are almost exclusively about achievement, about triumph. But sometimes, sometimes things that elicit our praise and elicit our worship also carry tragedy that's unseen. We can show up to a parade and all we're thinking about is celebration and yet there could be something tragic happening at the same time and we completely miss it. We overlook it. Oh, we're not there. I'm only there to celebrate. I'm not there to mourn. So I'm not going to see the things that are mournful or I'm not going to pay attention to the things that are mournful. I'm just here to celebrate because I'm here for the parade. And this was the case going back almost 100 years for a really uh, well-attended parade that was about triumph, but also was about tragedy. The summer of, of 1918, World War I was coming to an end. Uh, roughly about four or five more months, and it would come to an end in November of 1918. So in the summer months, folks were really looking for any reason to get together. This war had been going on for the better part of four years. And this was the first world war. This was the first war where you had multiple countries battling one another. This was supposed to be the war to end all wars. So it had been four years people have watched their husbands and their sons and their family members sent off to war, many of them dying in trench warfare. Folks were tired. Folks were waiting for a reason to celebrate. And the war was waning, and we, we could tell, the country could tell that uh, this war was going to be over soon. People were excited. They could see the end on the horizon. Well, the other issue was it was very expensive. It is very expensive to conduct a war. Somebody's got to pay for it. And so what ended up happening was many uh, uh, state governments and national uh, government would throw these parades to encourage people to purchase something called war bonds. These war bonds people could purchase as a way to support the war effort. And the idea was people would go to these parades and there would be people from these banks that would start offering opportunities for people to say, I'm glad you're celebrating and I'm glad you're happy about what we're doing in the country. Here's a way that you can help. And people would buy these war bonds. And it was a way for people to celebrate together. So everybody's out there at these parades. And this was happening. All kinds of major metropolitan cities all over the, the country. And so if there were major cities, people would, especially industrial cities, people would flood those places. They would have bands. They would have music. And people just couldn't wait to get out there. There was something else happening in, 19, in 1918 at the same time. Anybody know what that was? So in 1918, you've got World War I. <clears throat> That's really heavy. But at the same time, a deadly strain of the flu had also hit this country. This strain of the flu that no one had ever seen before. No one had known anything about it. They didn't really know to take it seriously at the time. And so uh, they had a shutdown for maybe three or four weeks in a lot of cities. And then people were like, kind of like us, I'm tired of this virus thing. I'm ready to, to keep moving. And it's interesting if you ever want to read how people talked about the idea of masks and distancing. A lot of the rebuttals that are now were the same rebuttals back then because we're the same. We've always been. We like our convenience. If you tell me I can't be convenient, somebody's taking away my rights. So people were doing that then too. And so during that time, they, were, they had spent some time being masked and they had spent some time uh, being distanced, but not very long. And people were like, we're tired of this, right? Because the first example of, the, of that flu that hit was in March of 1918. 
in roughly a month, maybe five weeks, people did their best and then they said, we're tired of it. Soon as the summer hit, they were like, we've been dealing with the war and we've been dealing with this pandemic. We are tired of this. So when the parade came out, everybody was like, I'm ready to celebrate. I need to go and enjoy and celebrate. And here's a, a good reason. This is a, a, a good reason everybody would agree. This is something that's triumphant. So they went out. So what we saw was this strain that had, uh, had been discovered or first reported in Madrid, Spain, which is why they called it, sadly, the Spanish flu, as if that's kind of the cause, but it really wasn't. It's just the first place where someone reported. And so now the Spanish flu is here, and people are dealing with that as well as wanting to celebrate. So fast forward. You've got the summer months. Folks are having these, these parades that are happening, and they've had three or four of them already. And once you got to the fourth parade, these folks who are understandably excited to finally be able to be outside and be with one another and to, to be close to one another. September 28th, Philadelphia had its fourth Liberty Loan Drive Parade. That's what they called it. They had had multiple parades through the summer. This was the big one. And people were really excited to go. And famous bands uh, came out to play and sing as citizens were crushed together like sardines in a can. And they were uh, around and they were celebrating. They were singing out the things that they all shared that were good. And they were shouting out the things that made them happy. And they were uh, so excited just to be around one another, people celebrating almost certain military triumph while overlooking impending tragedy. Three days after the parade, every bed in Philadelphia's 31 hospitals was full. By October 5th, about a week later, 2,600 people had died. That number jumped to 4,500 a week after that. There was a parade, there was triumph, but there was also tragedy. Sometimes a parade of triumph may carry unrecognized tragedy. And in many ways, that's a little of what we're seeing take place in our text on the first Palm Sunday, where there's incredible triumph, but there's also really heavy tragedy at the same time. And because people only want to see the triumphant thing and even define triumph the way they define triumph, they will overlook the tragedy, overlook the things that should bring us reason for weeping and mourning at the same time. So in some ways, Palm Sunday is the triumphal entry, but in some ways, it's also the anti-triumphal entry. In some ways, it's the tragic entry, but there's only one person in the whole story that recognizes it's tragic. That's where we find ourselves. So when we come into this text, Luke 19, and we're thinking through it, think about what I've shared, because when, when we read through this text, a good chunk of text, but we're going to spend most of our time in one area, but think about this text for a minute and identify where the triumph is, but also where the tragedy is. And maybe ask yourself, when I am uh, wanting to celebrate or wanting to worship, is my worship divorced from places where mourning is necessary? Do I see worship and mourning as diametrically opposed? Do I see myself as I'm only worshipful if I'm just thinking about the good things while not holding to the things that should make us heavy? I think we all know, especially over the last two years, we've had to learn that in some really hard, tragic, and very unique ways. So as we read this, think through that. What does it mean to be worshipful? What does it mean to look for things that are triumphant? But also, what does it mean to identify the mournful things, the tragic things? And what do we do with that? Luke chapter 19, starting at verse 28. 
When he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there, one which has never, uh, no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the young donkey, its owner said to them, why are you untying the donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. As he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you, surround you, and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's some triumph there, but there's also some heaviness there. And rarely do we, I don't know about you, but rarely do we see both of those dealt with at the same time. Most times when it's Palm Sunday, it's celebratory, and that's great, it should be, right? We should have the heart that wants to uh, chant and cry out Hosanna in the highest. We should be excited about the fact that we are remembering and entering, uh, entering into this time of the year where we specifically focus on not just the life and the death of Jesus, but the resurrection, the, the event upon which we place our greatest hope, right? The very event that Paul says, if it isn't true, our faith is useless, so yes, this is something to celebrate. This is something to take great joy in. But there's, it's, it's easy to overlook some of the things that I think the crowd at the time also overlooked. And that is the reason why the one person in the story that you would think should be the most joyous and boisterous is the one that actually is in a heart, has a heart of mourning. And we need to kind of talk about why. So let's start. You look at the first five or six, four or five verses here, in verses 28 through 34, and you, you see really this idea that Jesus and his disciples are kind of in preparation. So they're preparing to go into, uh, there's a, right now, Jesus knows, he's the only one that really knows what's getting ready to happen in the week. Really less than a week, really in about five days. Jesus knows what's getting ready to happen. He knows that uh, he's getting ready to go in to be crucified. And he's even mentioned it, but folks just honestly, even his own disciples, they really aren't wanting to hear that. They're not even really sure they understand what that means. They're not quite sure they, they want to hear that they're, they're still not quite sure how this Messiah thing is supposed to work. They have some ideas, but they're not quite sure. The crowd certainly doesn't have any real understanding of what's getting ready to happen. We've talked about this before, but because we know they are no different than us. When I, whatever it is that I view to be my greatest need, that is how I define what I need in a savior. 
Whatever it is that I see is my greatest need, that's what I will look for in a savior. If my greatest need is companionship, then somebody that can bring me a boo is my savior. If my greatest need is uh, to be able to have money, then anything or anyone that will bring that type of comfort becomes my savior. All things that aren't bad things, but once they become the ultimate thing, that becomes a a false savior, right? And so at the time, these folks, what they really wanted was this restoration of the very glory of Israel, politically and militarily. And yet some who even wanted the, the spiritual authority that was there as well. But all of these things, all three of these things, again, not necessarily bad on their own, but because that is what, that is what I want in a savior more than anything else. So what will happen is if whatever it is that I want to be true or whatever I want most, I'll, I'll kind of imbue that on to this person that I'm looking at as my savior now. You didn't even tell me you would do this for me, but because I want that so badly, that's what I'm looking for from you now. And so these folks were just like us. They're not any different. It's super tempting to look back at these stories and go, those silly folks, I can't believe they did that. Look at how wicked and, 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 and self-worshipful and idolatrous. They are us. That we're no different. If I asked everyone to list out the types of idols that we look to as false saviors, we would, be, we would not be short. We'd probably run out of time. It's easy to find things that are false saviors for us. So these folks definitely are looking for a type of savior. And so when Jesus is coming in, he already, he knows this, but he still has a mission. He still has the plan. He knows what he's here to do. So he starts to prepare. This is always interesting to me because I always thought for a while when I was prepping, I'm like, man, somebody could argue that Jesus like told his disciples to just steal a donkey. Like, like, hey, listen, go in. When you get in town, you're going to see a donkey. Uh, nobody's ridden it before. Just take it. And it's interesting, if, you, if it was just that and you don't hear anything, you don't see anything else that happens, you'd be inclined to go, well, all right, I guess, you know, the earth is the Lord and everything in it, so <laughs> I guess he can take anything he wants. It's interesting, when I was in, uh, when I was in Italy, there are groups of people uh, um, known as specifically one type of gypsy, these gypsy groups that actually believe that everything in the world belongs to them already. So what they were doing was they would actually use this gaseous form of chloroform and put it up underneath the door of people's apartments and then wait for everybody to fall asleep. And then they would go into the apartments, take whatever they wanted, make breakfast for themselves, clean the dishes, and then leave and feel no degree of guilt because they're like the earth of the Lord's and we belong to the Lord and this is ours. Yeah. Jesus didn't do that. Promise. But, but that is like, you could easily fall into that for a minute and go, man, like, what is that? But here's, what's interesting. The way we know that this wasn't the case is because of the response of the folks who were asking about what was happening with the donkey. Because the disciples go in and they start untying the donkey and someone else, assumably the owner, we don't know for sure, but I would think either the owner or people who know the owner are like, hey, what are you doing with that donkey? And he said, the Lord, they said, the Lord needs it. No protest after that. It almost gives us this quick lesson. It's not the main point here, but this lesson to understand everything really does belong to God. And God is going to use any and everything he chooses to bring glory back to himself. It's, it's, it seems like a rudimentary lesson, but it's one I think for myself I need to keep remembering. I suspect we all need to keep remembering that there is nothing that you own that I own that doesn't and should not belong to God. 
There's nothing that we have that we should cling to to the degree that we're like, Lord, you can have everything else but this. And so let that just be a side lesson for you to maybe ponder on your own. What things do I still cling to? Like what would be that colt or that donkey that I would say, don't untie it, Lord, don't untie it. What would that be? So, so here, quickly, they, they, they walk in and they do exactly what Jesus told them. And, and he shows him that he shows us that he will use any and everything to display his love for and his lordship over all creation. Then the procession begins. So you get to th- verses 35 through 38 and you see what happens. They go in, they bring the, the cult to Jesus. And so now you've got this little uh, donkey, this little basically baby donkey that's there has never been ridden before. And you've got uh, these, uh, the, the folks, the, the, they're putting their clothes, they're, some of the things basically almost like luggage, they're laying across the donkey to, to carry. And then they, they help Jesus get on top of it and it begins riding. Now for us, this really might feel like there's just no real context for this. We're like, well, well None of us ride on donkeys, I imagine. And, and maybe a few of us who are so privileged might ride on a horse. I know Jen's family grew up with horses, so y'all know about that. So, so like for most of us, we don't have any real context for this. Why would that matter? Why would I even care? But the people then knew exactly what that meant. Especially uh, any Jewish person who understood some of these basic tenets of their faith, They knew exactly what that was signifying. For better or for worse, people knew what they were looking at. And so Jesus comes in, he gets on this, uh, he gets on this cult. And uh, people may be wondering why he's doing it. They may be going, out of all the people, why would he be the one to be riding on this cult? But, but he's going in. I don't really think most, I think most people really understood what was happening. And, and there's this interesting uh, thing there, the way that the disciples begin to answer. And we talked about this before, but... You think about people looking at Jesus and you see him riding in this regal procession. So you know people are going, it's not even about the event. They're going, who is he that he's riding on this donkey this way? Who, who is he to be in this, uh, this, this kind of kingly procession, if you will? Who, who is this and what is he saying about himself? And you can see the disciples and other people who were following him saying, it's the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Some people... However, they were defining what the Lord should look like. They were still professing that this was the Lord and they began to sing out and they began to shout and they begin to celebrate and get uh, excited. One person starts to begin to chant Hosanna and everybody else comes together and chants with them. They, uh, they start taking up the cry with them. After a while, the entire road starts to echo with shouts of praise. As people get caught up in the moment, Some start spreading their clothes, their cloaks on the ground out ahead of the donkey with this king coming. And other people start taking leaves from palm trees and laying them down as if there's this royal role, this royal procession that they just want to be a part of. And this is a beautiful picture. And this should be something that hopefully is true of us, especially as we continue to meet again. Worship. And this, this is, this is big because this is both good and bad. Worship is infectious. Worship should be infectious. If we're all celebrating the same thing, then we all should be engaging in the worship of the same thing. Now, that also can be negative because if we all are sharing or worshiping the wrong thing, 
that also becomes infectious. We all begin to uh, celebrate a thing that, that grieves God's heart. But if we all are celebrating together, it's weird how group dynamics work. Everybody is getting hyped up about a thing and then other people just, it's in fact, it kind of subsumes you. You can't help but to want to jump on board and be a part of it, even on a small level. Like, I, I, I do not care about the Atlanta Braves. I, I don't care. Sorry. I don't really care. But it was fun to be a part of all of the fun things that was happening and all the enjoyment and the things that people were taking part in. I didn't really care beforehand, but it was just fun. You just get kind of absorbed into it, right? This is what we see happening here, and it's dangerous because we've got to know, okay, like, it's not enough that the crowd is all going one way. Does the crowd have the same view of the God that I claim to serve? Does the crowd see who God really is so that I can move with them? This is so interesting that you see folks kind of just looking and they're seeing what's happening, and all of a sudden they kind of just join in. And everyone's singing and shouting and, and, and yelling out, glory to God in the high, highest, Hosanna in the highest. This is the Lord God. You see people saying these things. The question is, and maybe for some people they really do believe this, but we know for some people they didn't. We know that at least a few of the people here, less than a week later, will be the same people yelling, crucify him. Which says that though your words may be filled with worship, your heart may not be. And though your word may be filled with a type of worship, it may be misdirected worship. And so we've got to know where, where are we? How do we see where Jesus is? Now, the, the beautiful thing in that is there's, we don't live and stay in a place of shame because of that. Because Jesus still receives the worship of all of these folks, albeit whether it's accurate, whether it's not, whether it's rooted in something that's accurate, whether it's not. Jesus doesn't stop and rebuke the people during that time. He accepts them where they are. He meets us where they are. We say this all the time. God loves us and he accepts us where we are. But he loves us too much to do what? To leave us there. He does not leave you there. So he might find you in a place where your worship is misdirected and, and disordered. But at some point, as we continue to know him, love him, worship him, he begins to reorder. And it, either he reorders the things that can be or rejects the things that need to be rejected. So here, you've got folks, maybe some folks, who are definitely trusting him for the right reason, some people who knows what they're doing, and yet, as everyone is chanting, Hosanna, worship is happening. And here they are, they're eventually moving through the road and they get to the summit, the top of this mountain, the Mount of Olives. And at that point, you can see they're looking down at the city of Jerusalem. If you've ever visited there, that's kind of how it's uh, oriented. So you could be at the top of what we believe to be the Mount of Olives and you can look down and see the city of Jerusalem. And that, that's where they are. Jesus is getting ready to go into the city and they're watching and they're worshiping. And they're chanting and yelling out. And then we get to 39 and 40 and we see the little donkey makes its way towards this Kidron Valley. You've got people on the outskirts of the city now that have been hearing and watching this parade happen and hearing all of the music. And so they're joining in, right, as we are wont to do. Real quick, y'all do, just, I didn't throw this in before, but I didn't say why, right? We all want to worship. Why? Why do we all want to worship? We are created to worship. Understand that. We are created to worship. You may not even necessarily know what to worship, but you're created to worship. And if you don't know 
what to worship, something will be offered to you, I promise. You don't even have to intend to do so. It will find you. You don't even have to go looking for worship. Worship will find you. So these folks are wired for that, so they're worshiping. And the donkey makes its way, and you got people on the outskirts. They're joining in. They're praising the master. They're excited about this. The whole valley ringing out with the cries of Hosanna. This was so boisterous, this Palm Sunday caravan, that it seemingly was getting out of hand for some people, specifically the religious leaders, the Pharisees. They're looking like, wait a minute. We got all these folks that are worshiping this guy. We don't even think he is who he says he is. And here he is riding on this donkey. And by the way, we kind of know why the Pharisees would know right away why he's riding on the donkey, because in many ways he is fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah that describes this very event. He's looking at this passage. Let me read it for you really quick in Zechariah, where it's so obvious in Zechariah 9.9, any good Jewish student, any good Jewish person would have known this passage. This was one of the passages that they held to as they looked forward to the Messiah coming. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious. Listen to this. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Any well-read Jewish person would recognize what's happening here. Oh my goodness, is it him? It must be him. I mean, he's riding on a donkey. Remember, it's showing you the humility. Think about this. If I said... Hey, y'all, we all are going to go in. We are being, uh, we are being uh, exalted. People are looking at us, and they're saying great things about us as a church. We're going to ride in on this parade. They want to see us. What would you prefer to be driving? Let's just be honest. I'm not, nobody's going to be like, give me a Toyota Tercel. If you drive one, that's great. Awesome. Take care of it. Be a good steward. But none of us would be like, sign me up for a Datsun. Nobody would do that. Typically, if you're going to be in a place or a, pers- a, pos- a position of honor, you're going to be like, put me in a Rolls Royce. Give me a nice uh, new brand new Beamer. Give me a Land Rover. Give me something that's really nice and classy and luxurious. Put me in a really nice limousine. Put me in a- Typically, whenever there's someone that has some high dignity, that's the kind of vehicle we put them in. You wouldn't normally expect that somebody would put, be on something that is just so lowly like a donkey. It's not even like a horse. This isn't a stallion or a Clydesdale. This is a donkey. So the only reason why somebody would do this is if they really truly understood the scriptures, if they knew. And this is one of those places where Jesus does intentionally do something to show, I am the one about whom you have been reading and waiting for. So they know what this is. The Pharisees definitely know. If, if this was lost on anybody else in the crowd, it wasn't lost on these Pharisees. They're very well educated. They know exactly what these prophecies say. And so they're getting angry because they're like, this, this man really is trying to convince everybody that he's the Messiah. <clears throat> this man is really trying to stir up the crowd, wrestle away some of the spiritual authority that we've worked so hard to attain because that's their worship worshiping themselves and worshiping their knowledge and worshiping what they think they know about God religiously. We can fall into that too. Worshiping the fact that they've got the right theology. And all of a sudden here Jesus is, he's already been teaching things that pokes holes in the way that they have been understanding God. 
And now he's got the crowds on his side. And he did it by, in their mind, artificially satisfying prophecy. That's how they're seeing it. So they're looking at him and they're getting upset as the whole valley is singing out Hosanna. And this caravan is coming and, and the Pharisees are saying to themselves, we see this in John, when John records the same uh, story, he says that the Pharisees are looking and they're saying, look at how the world has gone after him. Look at how they are all following him. In many ways, it's like the, the thing that we've been holding on to for our own powers is, is threatened. And they're angry because they're watching this king's triumphal entry into the city. Everyone's shouting. Everyone's happy. Everybody's in a holiday mood. So all of that, you see the Pharisees, and they're, they're the easy ones to pick on because we already know we've read through a lot. There's several things we've talked about that lead up to this that shows where the Pharisees' mindset uh, were. But, but what's more interesting is how everybody else is rejoicing and singing except for Jesus. Except for Jesus. You don't see this jubilation in Christ in the midst of everybody else celebrating. I mean, think about that. Imagine if it's like your birthday and you're at a birthday party that people threw for you and uh, there is just everything. The, the edifice is ornately decorated and there's streamers and there's fun things and people put something on the big screen to celebrate your life. And everybody else is just getting up to talk about all the wonderful things they've loved about you and all the things they appreciate about you. And then you're sitting there just looking sad and begin weeping. How, how tone deaf would it be for us to be like, well, they're crying, but it's their birthday, so let's keep on singing, y'all. See, that's what our worship starts to look like. We don't always realize it in the moment because, wait, I came here for the party. What that proves is sometimes I'm here for your party, but I'm not here for you. I'm here for the party. I, I enjoy the, the festivities, and I enjoy all the fun. I enjoy the punch. I enjoy the food. I enjoy the cake. I enjoy the music. I enjoy the nostalgia, but I'm not really here for you. Imagine what, how much tone deafness has to be on display with that. Jesus is coming through. Everybody's uh, singing and shouting and praising and all these things. And Jesus, the only one, is there weeping and sorrowful. This is one of the most remarkable aspects of this scene that it can be so easy to overlook on Palm Sunday. This remarkable thing. I love the picture that Luke paints here because you see the crowds adoring him. The disciples are doubting. The Pharisees are raging. And even Judas, as we see in other texts, is scheming all of this time. And while they're doing all of that, Jesus wept. He didn't weep for the fate that would befall him in the coming days. Um, he didn't weep for the fact that he was betrayed by his friend. We see what he was weeping for. He was weeping for the city of Jerusalem. The place that really was supposed to be the corner, the, the very foundation of God's heart for his people, this promised land, this promised area that was supposed to be used and stewarded in a way that would show the heart of God to the nations. The, pe the very people that in his love and in his grace for 2,000 years leading up to this point, he has shown love and mercy and protection, all of these things, revealing himself in various ways, calling them into covenant community. 
so that they would then show and reflect the very heart of God to the world. After rebellion, after rebellion, after rebellion, he is still showing his love. And so Jesus is coming into the very city that should be the city that is the perfect or as close to perfect reflection of who God is. And yet it isn't. And not only does the city not reflect that, the city doesn't even recognize God among them. The very God that rescued them, the very God that has provided for them, is the very God that goes ignored by them. Jesus is coming in, everybody's celebrating, and he's weeping. And he's weeping, not just because of the fact that they have ignored him, but you see the humanity of Jesus, I love this, in, in full view as he weeps. Because now, especially now, we don't always have a good theology for weeping. We don't have a good theology for mourning. Our tendency is when somebody begins to weep, our job is to, how do I alleviate your weeping? How do I stop you right now from weeping? Or maybe, maybe, I talked to somebody recently and said, you know, I just get really uncomfortable when people start crying because I don't know what to do. And that's understandable. Some of us, we don't know what to do necessarily if somebody is sad. But it can get to the point where you're like, I, I just avoid people when they're sad because I don't really know what to say. Some of us were wired differently. We may not even have the empathy that's necessary. By the way, a lot of times, if you don't have empathy, you usually don't know it. A lot of times you might think you have empathy and you let other people tell you that you're, in, that you, that you're empathetic. Don't be the one to tell other people, I'm really empathetic, like be careful with that. Folks here, many times they see Jesus and he's weeping and no one really knows or recognizes and can even enter into that. And yet Jesus is weeping for these reasons. He sees the city, he weeps over it, and he says, if you had known, even you, especially in this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Now they're hidden from your eyes. If you had known why I was here, if you had known what it is that I came to show you, you wouldn't be acting this way. You, you'd be happy, but you'd also be heavy hearted with me because you would know why I'm here. You would know the call that God has had, the Father has had on my life. And Jesus has tried to communicate this to them before. So what does he say later? He says, days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground. They won't leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation, as one version puts it. I'm just wondering, how did nobody respond to this? Because we see nothing else in the story that makes people go, y'all, hold up, hold up, tell the band to stop, tell the band to stop. Jesus just said something that is like a major record-scratching moment right now. He just said something that really the party needs to stop. Because he's, he's weeping, and there's nothing he's saying is jovial in nature right now. But that doesn't happen. The party has to keep going. Because we came to party. We didn't come to more. Sometimes when we're talking about Easter too. Traditionally, Easter is fun, it's great. For the last several years, it's always been fun. What are we gonna wear and what are we gonna put on? How many pastels can I work in this pattern? What can I do with the different seersuckers? I've never done seersucker, but a lot of people do it well. All these fun things that are great and it's wonderful and what, all those things are exciting, but so many times we can miss this one piece when it comes to Holy Week. That's okay to be triumphant. It's okay to want to enjoy and it's okay to want to party. But is there a place where we enter into the same morning of Jesus? 
Like we love to say, like, I love God and I want to love what he loves and hate what he hates. Ultimately, what we're saying is, I want my heart to be in the same position that God's heart is in. So if God's heart is oriented here on this issue, my heart should be oriented here as well. It's very dangerous when God's heart is zigging and my heart is zagging, but I'm still saying Hosanna. That's where we find so often in our own sinful hearts, the way that we function, every single sin is an example where I'm zigging where God zagged. Every single one. So I have to deal with this. I've got to figure out how do I ensure that, yes, I'm worshiping, and that's great, but how do I make sure that in the midst of my worship, I'm still seeing if I'm still in step with where God's heart is? So you've got Jesus seeing this reality, the crowd of the people enthusiastically cheering. And many of them, for the most part, would end up rejecting. Even some of his disciples would end up rejecting. He sees this reality. There would be many who would believe in Jerusalem, but the destruction of this beautiful city, we find out later uh, from the historian Josephus, 70 AD, this city gets sacked. It's interesting, right? You're looking roughly 35 years after this happens, because Jesus is saying, if only, if only you would have known, if only you would have seen, if only you would have shared the heart that I've been giving you, this would be different. But now because of this, because you haven't seen, because really you have already constructed who it is you want to worship, this is what's going to happen. That should have been sobering. I mean, listen, go back to the example we used. If I'm in the middle of a party and y'all throwing it for me, and then all of a sudden I'm like, listen, I'm so glad y'all threw me this party in this building, and it's amazing, and I appreciate you guys, but in about 10 minutes, there's about to be a hurricane to wipe this thing out. And y'all just looked and was like, hey, get back in key A flat, please. We got stuff to sing. <laughs> Imagine. But that's really where, so Jesus is looking, he sees this crowd, this, this, this very, uh, it's a mixed day. It's a mixed day. It's not one or the other. It's not just all triumphant. It's not all mourning. This is a mixed bag. Y'all, life is a mixed bag. Just be honest. Like, it's never just one thing. I think in our hearts, because we all struggle with nuance. We all do. I just want to be in a place where it's just celebratory or just mourning. Both of those places can be very unhealthy. And sometimes both of those places are places we find our identity. So I just want positivity, positivity, positivity in the midst or at the expense of the things that are mournful. That turns into like a toxic positivity. It's a place where people are like, that's okay, but, but God is good. Yes, he is. But I'm in a place of real mourning and that is not helping me right now. I need you to come mourn with those who are mourning. Don't try to rejoice with the one who's mourning. I need to mourn right now. But this is where Jesus teaches us and he shows us how to handle the mixed days that we all have. Things that are triumphant and things that are tragic. He sees that reality. So you've got a day of cheering, fearing, scheming, jealousy, sorrow, all happening at the same time as Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. Y'all, things, things don't work where I can only either rejoice when everything's good <laughs> or uh, it's, it's impossible for me to mourn unless everything's bad. It can't be that way. Jesus teaches us how that looks because most of that, what we just described, beneath the surface is hardly triumphal. There's nothing hugely triumphant about the very savior of the world carrying 
the weight of the world that the world doesn't even see. And people are still celebrating. This is the reality that Jesus gives to us. It's a part of his suffering. And it's a very large part of his suffering that he suffered in such a deep way. This, this place that's devoid of human sympathy. Think about that. From whom would Jesus get sympathy here on the world during that time? Who was going to be the one to come alongside and help dry those tears? Who was going to be the one to come alongside and, and, and say, I know that you're carrying this weight right now. You know everything. I know that you're looking at the one who was saying Hosanna, and they may be one of those people that may be yelling for your crucifixion in five days. I can't imagine how heavy this must be. You see this level of uh, aloneness. Now, these folks, they, they, they're seeing Jesus come through. And you know what they're seeing? They're seeing Jer Jerusalem restored to glory. That's what they're seeing. You know what Jesus is seeing? Jerusalem getting destroyed in about 30 years. It's a mixed day. And as Jesus makes his way, I feel like it's easy to overlook the fact that his weeping <sighs> reveals everything. You could look at this story and all of the celebration is what you think is the big reveal. The big reveal is that in the midst of all of this, Jesus is weeping. And let me just ask you this. The only way to really try to, we can never understand fully, but the only way to try to ascertain a little portion of what might be happening here is for you to answer this question. Have you ever felt alone? Have you ever felt just so uh, uh, disconnected and maybe even crushed by loneliness? And I don't mean physically alone that there's no one there. Listen, I think a lot of us can agree. You can, be, you can be alone around a lot of people. You can be uh, alone together. Have you ever felt alone? Not because, not because you wanted to be alone, but because maybe you felt uh, abandoned, desolate, forsaken, betrayed, unseen, unheard, misunderstood. Have you ever felt even that level of loneliness? Have you ever been so lonely that you can hardly think of anything else but just how desperate you are just to be with others, just to be loved, just to be, again, to be, to be seen, just to enjoy the company of people that love you, the fellowship of people that love you? I don't know that there is a more desolating, crippling human emotion and experience than profound loneliness. We know this from some of the first things God ever said. Man or mankind, it is not good for man to be what? Alone. So, so the counter must be true. It is bad for us to be alone. This is not just physical proximity to people. It is bad relationally and emotionally for us to feel alone. Have you ever felt that kind of loneliness before? Have you felt that? Because if you have, then you're close to where the author of Psalm 42 uh, was when you've, if you've ever felt forsaken and desolate of that intimate and affectionate companionship that, that human beings need, that human beings were made to crave. 
Maybe you feel like you can connect to what maybe Elijah felt when he fled from Jezebel and alone in the desert cried out to God, I, even I only am left one prophet of the Lord. Y'all know in the Old Testament, it was not popular to be a prophet. Usually you were bringing news people didn't want to hear. That was a lonely place to be. Nowadays, everybody's a prophet and there's just nothing news people want to hear. Back then, you were a prophet, nobody wanted to be around you. But you've got uh, this, this, this loneliness that you see. Maybe you've seen the loneliness of Joseph and, and maybe feel like you might be able to connect a little bit to his isolation, his, his loneliness. The ways in which uh, he felt so far from home, far from his family, cast away into this Egyptian jail for a crime he didn't commit, finding himself among complete strangers. No doubt the roughest type of folks in these prisons wondering if he would ever again see the light of day. Have you ever felt lonely? Think about the fact that that loneliness, your loneliness, it's not even about, it's easy to go, well, if you think that's lonely, Jesus had it worse. No, that's not it, because that sometimes can mute and force you to almost kind of push away and, dare I say, gospel gaslight you from actually focusing on the pain that you're dealing with. But here's the thing. It's not about knowing Jesus had it worse, so suck it up. Jesus did have it worse, which means he understands you. He had it worse, which means he can meet you where you are, and he can speak to you with, 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 honestly, with honest fluency in the pain that you have. See, the thing is, I may have gone through loneliness, but there are, there are types of loneliness you've been through that I can't speak to. I'm just not fluent in that type of loneliness, maybe. And there are things that I've gone through that I deal with that you're not going to be able to understand, and you may not be fluent in that. Now, we try, and we need to continue to be there for each other, but the beauty is because Jesus has actually dealt with some of the most, the most heinous form of loneliness, complete separation from his father on your behalf. There's not a loneliness you have he can't relate to. There's not a thing you feel that he does not understand. And if he understands the pain, then only he has the way to comfort you in the midst of your pain. This is what it means to be in that mixed place. And this is why it's one of the most sacred responsibilities of any Christian life to ponder the sufferings of the Savior and to not just get absorbed into our suffering alone because you'll start writing your own rules for how to heal yourself from your pain. But if you go to the one who understands more than you do about your pain, then you go to the one who knows how to comfort you in that pain. We ponder that part of our loneliness. This is the responsibility of what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means, this idea of the love of God that is in Jesus Christ. This is the very center of human history. Here we have this, one of the greatest events that ever would occur. That's why we love Easter. It's our Super Bowl, as people love to say. The greatest event that would happen, it's here that the glory of God, the love of Christ are most profoundly revealed. But here's what we have to understand. Your view of this, how you and I view this, how we hold these events, the triumph and the tragedy, these things, his, 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 the ways that he was forsaken, the ways that he was desolate, everything he endured for us, those things are going to go very far in determining what our love for Jesus looks like. Honestly. You see, it's going to be different. I can say Hosanna here 
But how much I actually think about the very suffering of my Savior will say whether or not Hosanna is true here in my heart. Again, my words might say one thing, but my heart reflects something else. So I reflect on the triumph, but do I reflect on the tragedy? Do you wonder at the tears of Jesus while all the people shouted, Hosannas? Jesus saw and he knew uh, the things that excited the crowd, and he knew that a lot of them had no idea what was really happening. And maybe today, maybe even today on this Palm Sunday, there are areas in your own life that in, your, in the midst of you just fighting to be triumphant, Jesus might be weeping. And he might be weeping, not uh, because you're lost, but he's weeping because he is working and he has done what is necessary to find you, to draw you, to bring you close. And so he's, he weeps when we're in places that aren't in step with him, but he doesn't leave us there. Jesus wept here and he still went to a cross. He didn't just weep and go, these folks don't get it, I'm, I'm, I'm out. These folks are showing, they still don't understand what I'm here to do, I'm done. He didn't abandon them. And he won't abandon you. That's the beauty of Palm Sunday. He cries because today, just like long ago, there are those who refuse his love. There are those who might in the moment, we might look and go, you're going to miss your opportunity to receive God's blessing. You're going to miss this opportunity. You're going to miss that. And, and in many ways, there are people there that easily you could say they're going to miss their opportunity. And yet Jesus, this is why when Jesus dies on that cross and he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. What kind of grace does that take? This is why you don't get left when we talk about this. Don't be left in just a place of shame. I hope and pray that we all are like, man, I can see places where I'm trying to fight for triumph when I need to embrace some tragedy. And, and that is something that I need to figure out how to reorder. And maybe there's a way that I have defined Jesus as a savior that is incorrect. And so my worship is disordered because of that. The beauty of the fact is that God is not going, well, those are all your strikes. You're done. That's right. See, that's an amen from a baby. When you get that, you know you're doing something. Jesus loves us and he is here not because we have our, our worship ordered correctly. He loves us despite the fact that so much of our worship is disordered and he weeps and he died and he resurrected so that we get to walk in his righteousness now. We don't have to live in the shame of that. We acknowledge it, we repent of it, and we keep moving toward the cross. Because even, even though there's tragedy, there's desolation, and there's darkness, we continue to walk in, in light that Jesus has shined. The place that Jesus shows his light. And we pray, Lord, I pray that you would bring real harvest in my own heart as I'm trying hard to hold to what it is that's true about you. Yes, I have tragedy here. Yes, I'm trying to figure out where triumph is. Jesus, show me where you are so I can follow you. May I not be one that shouts Hosanna here and ignores the pain here. May I not be someone, may we not be a church that focuses so much on one thing at the expense of the other. Let us be able to hold both in both hands, because Jesus holds it all in his. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you, you have shown us throughout all of recorded history 
just who you are to us, the ways that you love us, and how your love looks isn't necessarily the way we would uh, choose sometimes. It's not uh, often uh, something that we would uh, even expect or predict. And God, honestly, there are times because of the ways that we have just grown to expect you to act or we have been taught to look for you. God, there are times when we do, we miss you. We miss you. We redefine you in some different ways and then we begin to worship that. And when we do that, we realize that we miss who you are. We might remember some true things about you and we celebrate that. And then we ignore the things that still burden your heart, things that break your heart. God, we have said this to the point where it has become cliche, and yet I pray today that it would not. I pray that we would be able to say, Lord, will you break our hearts for the things that break yours? Lord, let us rejoice in the things in which you rejoice. And then let us mourn the things that you mourn. God, as we think through this Palm Sunday, I pray that our lips would be able to say Hosanna and that our heart would be able to say the same. And that means that we can hold the things up about you that, that give us reason for celebration and also the things, about, uh, the things you've shown us about who we are, shown us about what you are still calling us from and calling us to so that we can begin to mourn the areas that are yet to be fully sanctified, the areas that need to continually be pruned. And let us be able to hold those together. Father, I pray that much of what a parade is supposed to do is to extol the virtues for the world to see, the things about you for which great celebration is deserved. And so God, I pray that we would be a people that is always that are always walking in a parade, always being able to, to, to communicate the things about you that are worthy of praise and at the same time holding and not ignoring the places that you still weep. May we see you. May we feel you. May we know you. And will you change us? In Jesus' name, amen. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. It is to the only wise God, our savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. And all of God's people said, amen. Happy Palm Sunday. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Thanks for listening to this message from Icon Community Church. Please visit us online at iconcommunitychurch.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.